Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the fourth week of our series called Wallet, Keys, Armor. This week, Pastor Mike will be teaching from Ephesians 6, verse 16. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that down in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Now, we've been looking at Ephesians, and and Ephesians as a whole, it has this incredible book, and it gives us all these ideas of truths to know about our walk with God, you know, truths to know how we're to live out the Christian life. And at the end, he's basically saying, this is going to be hard. And Paul's saying the reason it's hard is it's not just, it's not just us. It's not just our self-will. It's not just our effort. It's hard because there's actually a spiritual battle that is involved in here. There's an enemy, a real enemy that's fighting against us and, and trying to not only trip us up, but trying to destroy us in that, in that walk of faith. And so that's the context that we see starting in verse 10 of chapter 6. And he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's not just about ourselves. It's not just about self-will. It's, it's not about the discipline. There's a spiritual battle. And in that battle, because we face a real enemy, we need strength that isn't of ourselves. And God gives it to us through what he describes in this armor. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So he calls us to put on this armor. But what is the armor? Well, simply put, to kind of summarize it, it's looking at the blessings and the benefits that we have because of our relationship in Christ. And, And not only believing them in our mind, but then appropriating them, using them. It means that we not only believe them to be true in our mind, but we actually embrace it in our heart and we live as if it's true. In a sense, it's what we just sang, speaking Jesus. It's literally saying, okay, here's the truths of Jesus, and I'm speaking it over every aspect of my life. I'm proclaiming as if this is true, and then saying, God, help me to live as if it's true. Help me to, to see the lie as what it is and to live in the truth that you call us to. And so that's the call. And then he gives us this description, and Paul uses this imagery of the Roman soldier and the armor that he would have worn to describe something of this armor that God has called us to live in. Now, as he does so, the people in his day that were reading would have been very familiar with the Roman soldier and the armor that they wore. They would have seen them walking around on a daily basis. But there's a challenge for us who read this now some 2,000 years later, and that is that we generally don't see Roman soldiers around very often. And, uh, And oftentimes, the idea of what we think that a Roman soldier's armor would look like comes from a movie or from Joseph wearing his costume up on the, uh, you know, the opening little video. And, but what if our picture of what armor is is incomplete or even inaccurate? And so this morning, we've got to look at that. Paul calls us to, put, to take up the shield of faith. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you, you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So what is this faith like? The shield, and, and even when it talks about why, because there's flaming darts of the evil one, what are those? And how does that all work out here? See, the thing is, that it, is there's a point where we've got to try to understand the picture because he's building on an image. And if we don't properly understand the image, we may not properly understand the point that he's trying to make. And again, the problem is that many of us, when we think of Roman armor, we think of you know, Hollywood, we think of movies and the pictures that are there. And, and, but when it comes to the shield, 
I think that's where Hollywood often gets it wrong. See, when we think of a shield, I think most of us think of, you know, a Roman soldier that's, that's holding like a little, little you know, shield like this. Or, you know, I think about my boys when we'd have Nerf, fun, you know, Nerf sword fights and you've got this little hand shield and you hold up here with your weak arm that you can attack with your strong arm and block their attack. And that's often the picture that we get, this hand-to-hand combat. Uh, but the problem is, is that this or that, definitely not Nerf, but, you know, this or that was nothing like what the Roman soldier actually carried. You see, what you would have is it was not a small shield that they would have to defend against sword strikes. It was a far larger shield, and the primary purpose was to defend against arrow strikes. Now, here's what would happen, to give historical context. Rome was pretty much always the attacking army. And so when they would go to attack in ancient warfare, the defending army would have a huge advantage. They would generally get to choose the battleground. They would set up their forces and and basically dare them to come and attack. And usually what that would mean is that they would set up their defenses and then have a long field that would, you know, that the attacking army would open field they'd have to march across. And and ideally, it would over the, the last part of that would be uphill, so they would be slowed down and tired out by just that marching. Now, what would happen is that as they would begin to get there, like about a quarter mile away, the defending army would have thousands of archers, and they would load up their arrows, and they would just start shooting thousands of arrows in these huge volleys with the goal of hitting these advancing armies over the course. Even if they were to try to run that quarter mile, it's going to take a while in the armor. And their goal would be to take out as many people as they could, even before they had a chance to draw their sword. Now, that's where the Roman shield came in. It was primarily defensive weapon against those arrow attacks. And it was not this little thing like that that you would carry, you know, on one, one hand. It was actually something that was closer to this size. In fact, it was probably, it was, you know, curved, so it would have been a little narrower than this, but actually about a half foot taller. You know, it was like a size of almost a you know, small door. It was huge. And you would hide behind this as you would march, and it would protect from the arrows. You know, so it would be something, you know, very similar to this. And... Um, now, now, even in that, there is a challenge because, you know, any army, they're saying, okay, if that's how you defend, how do we, how do we adjust our strategy to beat your defense? And so in this case, someone came up with a weakness to the defense. The shields were made out of wood. And so what they thought is, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to have our archers come in, put their arrows in pitch before, as they're attacking, have, you know, have a line of fire there, and we get ready, you put that arrow in fire, it lights up, and then you, from a quarter mile, you start shooting these thousands of arrows into the the army. Now, it hits a wooden shield, and what happens? It catches it on fire. And if you've got that quarter mile march across ground, just in that time, that shield begins to catch fire. It gets too hot for the Roman soldier to hold. He's got to throw it beside, and next thing you know, they're vulnerable to the attack of the arrows. And so that's when it talks about this fiery arrows, that's what was going on. Now, here's what happened. The Roman shield would put those out because they likewise then had a technological advance. Their shields were unique. It was a technological advance for that time. What they would do is that they took in their shield that was made of several layers of wood, and they would put a, a, a layer of linen between the wood and then glue the wood together, and then on top of that, they would put linen and then hide, you know, leather basically. So as the arrows would come in, the wood would absorb the, the, uh, the weight of the arrow, the, the force of it, 
but then the, the, uh, the linen and the leather would put out the, the flame. And so instead of lighting on fire, they would, you know, they would march in and you'd have these thousands of arrows coming. And people that describe it, they said by the time that they would get up there, they described that the shields would often look bristle with smoking arrows like roasted porcupines, was the description. And that's what would happen. And that's the picture that Paul is pointing here. We are in this, in this spiritual warfare and the enemy launches repeated volleys of blazing arrows at us, temptations and deception and trials, trying to impale us and to inflame us. But we're to stand behind our shield of faith into which those arrows thud harmlessly. Now, when we look at this, we say, okay, God calls us to take up our shield of faith. We need to say, okay, then how is our shield like a, our, our faith like a shield? How do we hold it? And not only that, but then it's to defend ourselves against these flaming arrows. How is it that Satan's attack are like flaming arrows? So let's first of all look at the shield. Okay, how is our faith to be like a shield? It's ultimately faith in the character of God. I think when a lot of people think about faith and talk about it, we often can get a misunderstanding. You know, we, we think of faith, well, it's faith in, in our salvation, which is true. And, and we're going to talk, we talked last week about breastplate of righteousness and having confidence in what God says. A lot of times when people talk about faith, it's faith to believe in God and, and for him to do miracles. And I've heard people talk about and quote Jesus in John, or Matthew 17, 20. And if we have faith of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. But oftentimes, the way that, that plays out in practice, it's almost like, well, I need to believe. And, and it's almost that we have faith in our, our, in our own faith. If I just believe enough, then God will work. And, and so the, the subject of faith is our own faith. See, but this isn't faith in ourselves. It isn't even confidence in God's ability to, to answer prayer or those things. It's, it's, it's something different, something deeper. See, when the Bible calls us to faith, it consistently calls us to a faith in the goodness of God's character and then the reliability of his promises. Hebrews chapter 11 is considered by many to be the great chapter on faith, the great teaching about the nature of faith. And look at how it begins and how it describes faith. It teaches, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Basically, what it's saying here is that faith is, is when we are sure of things that when it says hope for, not that we're wishing is going to happen, but something that we know is going to happen but not yet realized. Conviction of things not seen, things that we do not see but that God tells us about himself. Faith is when the unseen promises of God are more real to us than what we see and what we feel and what we're experiencing in the here and the everyday life. It's these times when we're in the middle of trial and we pray to God and we don't see him, we don't feel him, but yet we believe because he, what we, he says is true even though we don't see it and feel it. What continues this definition is it goes to verse 6 of Hebrews 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So it's, first of all, believing that God exists. And what it's saying is that we believe not only that he exists, but that he is God. That God is the creator of all things and that he, therefore, deserves our obedience. That he is God, therefore, he is all-knowing. He knows more than we do. That, that he says things that we may not understand, but we, since he's God, we're going to trust him because we believe that he is God. When, when, when he disagrees with what we think, we're going to accept what he says because because he's God. And not only that, but it means that we believe that he rewards those who seek him. 
And what that's teaching us is that we need to believe that God is good, that God is trustworthy, that he wants a relationship with us and he relates to us as his child. And therefore, while we may not always understand what he's doing, while it may not always seem and feel like a reward, in the long run, that if we obey and, and seek after God, that is the path to blessing. That is the path that he does reward those. He does, you know, that, you know, that, he, uh, it's trusting in his word means that we will seek to obey him because we believe in him. See, faith is confidence in the goodness of God and in the reliability of his word. That's the faith that we're called to. Now, why do we need to have this kind of faith? Because Satan will attack us with arrows of doubt that will try to get us to question the goodness of God. Now, if you want to know what even that looks like, all you have to do is go back to the very first temptation, go back to Genesis chapter 3, and think about the very first temptation, the arrows of doubt that Satan threw towards Adam and Eve, and how it led to the first sin. So let's go back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of all the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, here comes the big lie. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see what he's saying? God told you that, but God's not trustworthy. God lied to you. And not only is God not trustworthy, he's not good. He's not telling you that to protect you from something that's harmful. No, he told you that because he knows that when you, when you eat of it, your eyes are going to be open. It's going to be the path of blessing. So the, the attack was God is not good. God is not trustworthy. She believed it. And then it's like, okay, therefore I have to go outside of God's teaching to find happiness. My friends, we've got to realize that at this core, that's the same lie that Satan has been using that he still uses in each one of us to this day. All temptation is based on our doubting the goodness of God's character and the reliability of his word. It's doubting that he is really God that he really knows better than we do, that he really deserves our obedience. It's doubting that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, that he's good. So now that helps us understand the shield of faith a little bit more. But then how is it that we need to learn this, hold this up, and, and understanding the temptation and the trials that come our way, the, the arrows? When it talks about arrows, there are going to be two main types. There are temptations and there are trials. Both are, in a sense, pressures, they're attacks. Trials come from the outside, temptations come from with the inside, but both of them are attacks on our belief about God's goodness. Is God really good? Is he trustworthy? Does he really love me enough to give me the best? Is he in control? That's what we ask. So first of all, let's look at the flaming arrow of trial. Now, while temptations we're going to see cause us to question God's provision, Trials cause us to question God's protection and his wisdom. In trials, we ask, why hasn't God protected me from this? Why hasn't God taken care of me? You see, in trials, we go through something that is bad, something maybe that is an e evil. You know, someone has done something evil to us. We've been harmed by someone else's sin. We lose our job. You know, we face a health crisis, and we're not only in the midst of that crisis, but now we're dealing with all the bills that come with that crisis. We pray for healing, and yet that loved one dies. 
And, and we look at that, or we've been, you know, we've been abused or taken advantage of someone, and these are all terrible things. And when they happen, we ask, wait a second, if God is really good, if God is all-powerful and he's all-loving, then why does he let this happen? If he's really all-powerful and all-loving, couldn't he stop it? Couldn't he have changed things? And, and then we pray for God's intervention, and it feels like he's not. We don't, we don't see him working. We don't sense his presence. And in our heart, we cry out, God, do you care? Do you know what's going on? Are you there? You know, how can you allow this if you really love me? We think about Hebrews 11:6. You say in your word that you reward those who seek you, and, and I'm seeking you, but I don't see the reward. You see the deception in these times of trial, the flaming arrow that Satan shoots at our heart is that we doubt God's strength, we doubt God's wisdom, and we doubt God's love. Even as I've thought about it, the more I reflected on it, the more I realized that there's a significance that, that these attacks are described not just as arrows, but as flaming arrows. And, and I think he uses this description because he's trying to help us realize that the way that Satan attacks us is its impact is that that is similar to these flaming arrows. So think about the flaming arrows on the battlefield. What is the effect? You got the shield that doesn't really do any harm initially. It's just a little fire that's on the shield. You see, but if you don't deal with it, that little fire within a short period of time is going to ignite that shield and it's gonna destroy the whole shield where suddenly that shield is in embers and suddenly you're defenseless. And so then Satan comes and attacks, and, and he tempts us, and suddenly, because we now question God's goodness, we question whether really God loves us, at first it didn't seem to do that damage, but we're now vulnerable because our whole shield of faith has been removed. So if you think about this, you say, well, then how do we defend ourselves against that? Here's where we need to realize, there will be times that those doubts come, and there's a battle that we have to learn to trust God. It's a battle where we have to remind ourselves something about the goodness of God, of his character, the reliability of his word. Again, that's what I love that song. I speak Jesus. It's literally, okay, I'm speaking this to myself. I'm preaching this to myself. I need to remember these truths. But sometimes you might say, but it's hard to do that. You see, it's hard to really believe God when everything that I see and feel says that God isn't present, that God's not active. He's not answering my prayer. It seems as if God doesn't care. Well, let me remind you what Hebrews 11.1 1 teaches about faith. What is it? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, if I were to see God working at all time, I don't need faith. It doesn't take faith when I see God working. When he does the miracle, man, it's right there. When I need faith is when I don't see it. When, when the assurance of things hoped for, when I am sure of the things that God promises, when I have the conviction of things that I do not see, even when it disagrees with what I see and feel. Faith is the certainty of things that we cannot prove. Basically, when God's unseen promises are more real to us than our seen trials, our felt experiences. And it's a call to remind us that we need to fight this battle in our heart. It's a battle where we say, I'm going to lift up what I know to be true, and God help me to believe what I know to be true and not what I feel. Now, where is this hard? You know when it's, I think it's most difficult for us? For some of us who have walked with Christ, it's been most difficult at times when we are trying to do what's right. We're trying to obey God. And yet trials happen. Why? Because I think of even Hebrews eleven six. 6. God rewards those who seek him. And have you ever been to that point where you're saying, God, I'm seeking you. I'm trying to obey you. But yet, God, I don't see the reward. 
I can even look back in my own life in one period that was probably one of the darkest times spiritually in my life. Now I was obeying God, I was serving God, I was doing all the right things, so I thought. And, and in the middle of that, things were going, you know, going badly, and I was praying, and I didn't sense God's answer, and, and I'm crying out to God, God, where are you? And it seemed like he didn't hear me. And I increasingly became frustrated by God's lack of provision, what it felt like to me. And, and I even felt that this idea that, you know, okay, God, if, if you're going to let me down, you know, if you're not going to be here for me, why should I be here for you? God, if I'm going to serve you and it doesn't lead reward, then, then why even serve you? What good is it? You know, you're not keeping your end of the deal here. And I literally struggled with walking away with my faith at that time. And by God's grace, he held me up. And, but, it, but I've talked to many people over the years who did walk away from God or who have become far more distant, where, where once you were close to God, but there was that time where, man, you needed God and he wasn't there and you prayed and, and, and you were obeying him and he wasn't keeping his part of the deal. And so how can you trust him? And they walk away. Now, in the middle of that battle, it's hard, and I don't want to downplay that. But let me kind of back away and, in a sense, in a different way, show you the shallowness of the thinking. And I'm going to do it by using a, a clip from a movie, it being Christmas theme. Let me, it's a Christmas movie, the, uh, the Santa Claus. And, um, and I know that we may have kids here, so I'm going to introduce this clip in a very sensitive way, so not to share any secrets. And um, in, the, in the movie, the perspective of the movie, it's a world where Santa Claus is real. And we all know that as an audience. But there are people in the story who don't believe in Santa. And what's really significant is that I want you to see why they don't believe in Santa. It's not because there were intellectual questions. It's ultimately experiential. They're saying, well, there was this time where I really wanted this one gift, and Santa didn't give it, and so that's when I stopped believing. Watch, and you'll see what I mean. Oh, come on, Laura. Don't you remember when you stopped believing in Santa Claus? I was Charlie's age, I guess. I, I wrote Santa a letter every week that year. You know, maybe, maybe not every week, but boy, I really wanted a mystery day game. Do you remember those? No, <laughs> of course you don't. You know, no one does. Not, I don't even think they make them anymore, but well, anyway, Christmas morning came and Oh, I got dozens of presents. Oh, I got everything. Except mystery date. I was three. And it was an Oscar Mayer weenie whistle. Christmas came. No weenie whistle. And that's when I stopped believing. You look at that, you, you know, it's funny, and you say, what a shallow view of Santa. You know, he brings all these gifts, and because he didn't give that one thing that you wanted, that's when I stopped believing. And, and you never stop to think, even as an adult, to say, well, maybe as a three-year-old, a weenie whistle was kind of dangerous for a three-year-old, and maybe, you know, there was a reason. But you look at that, and there's humor in that. But it's a clip that strikes home. Because I tell you, I have talked to countless people over the years who have told me their story about why they stopped believing in God or why they have moved away from God, and it's basically the same thing. 
You know, I, I stopped believing in God. I, I walked away from God. Why? Because there was this time, and oh yeah, God has provided all this, and he's been there, but there was this time, and here was this need, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and when the time came, God didn't deliver. He didn't give me what I desired. He didn't give me what I needed. And I realize there are most certainly people here today, that's your story. You know, maybe at one time you had a strong faith with God, you trusted God, you loved him, and and. And it was there, but then there was this period that you needed him, and there was this crisis, and you prayed, and you prayed, and you prayed for him to answer the prayer, and he failed to do what you expected him to do. And because he failed to answer your prayer, or to put it actually more accurately, because he failed to do what you demanded of him, he failed to keep his part of the bargain, you see, then I just can't trust him anymore. I can't trust him in the same way, and you've walked away. My friends, if that's you, don't let the the flaming arrow of this trial take you down. That's what it is. It's a lie of Satan. It's a lie, you know, and you've let it hit you and you've let it consume your faith. It's a lie that you need to see it as a lie and you need to reclaim the faith in Christ. You need to come back and say, okay, that's a common attack, but but it's a lie. Well, one of those is trial, but the other one is is temptation. And in, in a lot of ways, when you look at that, it's similar in that both, like trial, it's questioning the goodness of God's character. While trials cause us to question God's protection and his wisdom, temptations cause us to question God's love and his provision. See, in trials, we say, God, why haven't you protected me from this harm? In temptation, we say, God, why have you failed to give me what I need? Why haven't you given me what's best? God, you've withheld something from me. It's the exact same arrow that Satan put towards Adam and Eve in the garden. That when he came and he said, well, God's holding back the best from you. And to use the imagery of the garden, you know, we can walk around and we can see God's provision here, here, here. He gives us all these things to enjoy, but we want to fixate on the few things that he tells us we can't have. Are you kidding me? You know, no, no sex before marriage, outside of marriage. God, are you, you know, God, are you kidding me? Why should I do that? You know, God, you're, you're calling me that, you know, that I, that, I, that I should give part of what I have. And God, you're calling me, I, I want to move up the corporate ladder and, and I've got to play by these rules of honesty and integrity. That's going to hurt me. God, why are you holding that back from me? God, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated because I don't have the popularity. I don't have what these other people have. And and so what happens is that we question God's character. We, we begin to buy the lie that God is withholding what is best. And the deception behind every temptation is that our doubting of, of God's goodness, our doubting of his character and completeness of his provision. So when we look at this, what do we have to realize? That no, God is the one who in the midst of this is the provider of everything that is good that we fight this battle for, this, for our soul. You know, passage that, that talks about this is in James chapter 1. James 1, the context is he's talking about trials. And he says in the midst of these trials that we need to realize that God's never the source, or temptation, I'm sorry, God's never the source of temptation. Why? Because he's not evil. He can't be the source of evil. He's good and perfect. He can never be the source of temptation in our life. So what is he then the source of? And he tells us in verse 16 and 17, do not be deceived, brothers. The deception leads to temptation. My beloved, uh, every good and perfect gift, this is the truth, is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's not only everything that we have is from, is from God, every good gift is from him, but his character is good. And what it's teaching is don't be deceived. Everything that is good, 
Everything that is perfect, everything that the Father looks at it and says, this is in your best interest, he will give us. Now, does he give us everything we want? No. Does he give us everything that we think we need? No, we might be the three-year-old thinking we need the weenie whistle. And we need to realize that there are times that God's going to say, no, I'm not going to hold that back. And in times, we may, and from our perspective, we think we really need it. And it's a crisis when we don't have it. And, but understand, this is God's character. Any temptation is a doubt of his goodness, and his, and that he really loves us, that he really desires what's best for us, that he knows what's best for us, and that he's given us this best. The core deception is always doubting God's goodness and his provision. Because what happens is because we then doubt his goodness and provision, because we think that he's holding something back, therefore to be happy, we have to go outside his provision. We have to go outside of his commandments. We have to go outside of his teaching. We have to be like Eve and say, okay, I need to take that fruit that God said I shouldn't take. And we buy the lie. See, it's the same lie that he used in Eden. Now, their arrows, I think they're smart weapons. They go towards unique temptation. My temptation is probably different than yours, but he aims it straight for our heart. And how do we defend ourselves against this? You know, knowing he's going to use these flaming arrows, he he calls us to, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Now, I want you to see that call, take up. It's a call to active faith, to use faith as an active weapon. I think so often we can see faith as almost this passive thing. Well, it's what I believe about God, and, and it's there behind in the scenes, but it's not something that we actually have to take up actively, that we have to struggle with. And here's the thing, is that a lot of times we think of our faith as primarily our knowledge. Oh, I know this about God, therefore it's what I believe. See, and we can come and we can affirm the things that we know about God. Oh, I know that God is good. I know that he's loving. I know that he's sovereign. I can quote, you know, Romans 8, 28. Oh, you know, God works all things to good for those who work according or follow after him. And we believe that, but here's the problem, is that knowledge stays here and it doesn't become living faith. And the difference is it's a living faith. It's a passive faith that we don't take up and actually apply to the temptations and trials that we have. Oh, I can know certain things, but if I don't actually apply them to this trial, this temptation, I have a shield, but it's like the shield standing here, but I don't actually ever pick it up. Faith is something that we're called to take up, and we take it up by applying it to our life, by applying it to the specific trials and temptations we face. So I can know in my mind again that God is good. I believe that he's loving. I believe that he's the creator, and, and he, just, you know, he knows better than I do. He's designed me, and he's my loving father who has my best interest in mind. I believe he's trustworthy and reliable, but then I'm tempted. Tempted. And the temptation says, well, you know, if you really want to be happy, you got to go outside of this. And suddenly, suddenly the question is, am I going to take up the shield and am I going to push against it and say, these are the things that I know to be true. I'm going to battle against what I feel and against what the world is telling me. Or I'm in the middle of trial and I know that God is good, but in the midst of that trial, I said, how can I believe God? He's not here. Am I going to take up that shield and say, I'm going to make it active and fight against that battle? And I'm going to realize that there's a, you know, that God's truth is there. See, the fact is that I can have a shield, but if I never actively pick it up, it's not going to apply. That's why it says, not just have faith, but it calls us in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. We need to take up the shield. And what does it mean? That we fight this battle in our hearts, 
that we recognize faith is what we believe. And our belief is going to be based on what we know to be true or what we feel to be true. And at times, that what we feel to be true and what we see in our experiences might be very different than what we know to be true of God's word. There are going to be times that I don't see God's goodness. I don't see his provision. I don't see, feel his love. I can't sense his plan. I might have the right beliefs about God, but I don't sense that. And it's, 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 it's hard to have faith when we don't see him working. When we see him working, it's easy. But it's hard when you don't sense God's presence, when you don't see him answering your prayer, when he doesn't do the things that you hope for and expect him to do. At that time, what do we need to realize? What does Hebrews say what faith is? Hebrews 11.1, 1. faith, it says in, in New Living, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the reality of what we hope for, not what we wish for. We, it's in God's word, but we do not yet have. The reality of God's promises are real to us, more real than our experience in the time of crisis. It's the evidence of things that we cannot see. It makes it more real. That, that basically, it's more real to us than what we see or feel at that time. Now, in that, there's one more point that I want to make just briefly with this shield and how we play it out in our lives. And it goes back to, let me go back to where I began, this picture of the Roman shield. You know, it's this, this, you know, this big old shield. And the thing is, is that I can take even a shield like this size, and as a Roman soldier, I could hold it up there, and it's going to protect me from almost everything. But what happens if some archers try to stu- start shooting from the side? What if they start shooting on a high arch, and, and they suddenly, the arrows are coming down below, and, and, and suddenly, if they have a good shot, I'm vulnerable. Now, this point is going to teach us something about the shield. The shield is a personal weapon, but it's to be exercised in the context of community with other people. And here's why. Because we are vulnerable by ourselves. I can have the shield, and there is a place of vulnerability. So what the Roman soldiers learned to do is when they marched, they marched in very close formation. They would have one that would be shoulder to shoulder with the next, and the guys behind would be very close And what they would do is they would not only hold up their shield, but because they're right next to the next guy, the next guy would put his shield and overlap. And the next guy and the next guy. And there would be a whole line of overlapping shields so that there was no side shot you can get. And not only that, well, how about from up top? Well, the guy that was behind, this guy's holding up his shield like this. The guy that was behind would hold up his shield like this, overlapping the front of the other guy. And the next guy behind him would overlap his. And so what would happen is, I mean, this is just a very small illustration, but if you could imagine thousands of men like this marching out and they would have this shield that was like this, you know, this, this giant tortoiseshell is, is in a sense, that they would totally protect them. There nothing could get through. Now, here's the application. The shield is a personal weapon. We're going to come back to that in a minute. We need to take up our own shield of faith. But it's also a weapon that is best exercised not by ourselves, but in community. And that means we need to realize that in the midst of this struggle, that, that we're going to str- have times where we are going to struggle in faith, where we are doubting, where we are weak, where we're in the midst of trial and crisis. And that's where we need to come alongside of each other. That's where we need to pray for each other, write notes to each other, you know, uh, reach out to each other. How can I help you? How can I support you? That's where we need to let other people in. We need to be vulnerable. You know, don't be the one that's strong that can do it on yourself. No, you cannot do it by yourself. God has not called us. He's called us to march in a group. And it's only as we march in the group that we remove those vulnerabilities. 
That's even part of why we do these prayer times at the end of the service now, while we're trying to do that. We're trying to say, boy, if you're here and you're struggling, come and let other people pray with you. Let other people march with you. Let other people cover you. And, and we're encouraging you, be aware of other people and reach out to them. Because only as we find this shield and community do we find its full strength. But at the end of the day, it starts by each one of us. It's a call to, literally, it's a call when it says, you know, the call is to a group. It's y'all take, it's actually to be Southern, all y'all take up your shield. You know, it's something we do together. But it starts by me, by you, by each one of us saying, I need to make a decision to take up and use my shield. You see, because all of us are going to face these battles, you might be here now. And Satan's been firing these darts. He's been casting these doubts. Maybe, you're, you know, you're kind of you know, simmering. Something's been burning. And maybe the shield's all gone. And to recognize in the middle of that, this is a battle. This is not something that it's, oh, I heard this one thing, and, and it's there. This is a battle. He calls us to take it up and to use it. It does not come easy. It's a battle for our own hearts and minds. So what's the temptation that you're facing? Do you really believe that God is good? Do you really believe he knows better than you are? Do you really believe he's loving? Do you th really believe in his provision? Or do you think that you're buying this, the lie of the enemy that, well, no, you got to take the apple that he told you you can't have for the trial that you're in? Do you really understand that God, what he says is he is good, he's loving, that, he's, that, he, that yes, he will call things to work together for good. We won't always understand it. There are times that he will not give us what we expect and what we hope, and, but if you trust his character, it doesn't make it easy. But the fact is, is trusting the character, saying, I choose to believe that which I know to be true of God, even when it's not what I feel. And some of you are there, and it is a battle, and I challenge you and encourage you to fight that battle. Some of you are there, and you're seeing that battle that is in the past, and you see the, you know, the, the remains of a shield that has been burnt up, and I'm challenging you to say, go back and reclaim that territory. Don't let Satan's lie to continue to drive you away from your trust in the goodness and the character of God. He is good. He is loving. He invites you to this incredible relationship with him as a father who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and who desires your good. Take up that shield of faith, fight that battle, and know his victory. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.